how many of you have, and I know we've got a few experienced walkers in the room, uh, so this question may not work, but how many of you have ever been on a walk and uh, got lost? Uh, any, oh, well, most of you, most of you. Okay, well, <laughs> don't go on a walk together. It could be awful. Um, now, uh, in this situation, when you've been on a walk and you've got lost, what do you normally do? Now, this is honesty time, so don't say what you think is the right answer. Be honest. How many of you would be inclined to look at a map if you got lost? Okay, a few of the experienced walkers, straight to the map. How many of you would uh, humble yourself and ask for help from someone else? Okay, fair few of you. Now, this is where the honesty kicks in. How many of you would bluff and pretend you're not lost? Okay, some of you as well. And how many of you would keep going, hoping that magically you become unlost? Okay, a fair few of you as well. Now, you may beg to differ on this, but I reckon probably the most straightforward approach, if you have lost your way, is to try and retrace your steps and go back to the point where you were not lost. In fact, go back to the beginning of the walk. And in many respects, that right there is what we're going to be doing in this series between now and Christmas. We're going to be together going back to the very beginning. We're going to look at the first three chapters in the book of Genesis that narrate the start of the story of the whole world. You see, I don't think it's really any great exaggeration to say that our society is pretty lost right now. Whereas the Bible speaks repeatedly of deeply profound personal design and uh, deep interconnected relationships at so many different levels, I reckon one of the byproducts of the individualism and the materialism that so dominate our society right now is we find ourselves today more and more disconnected from deeper reality, from deeper meaning, from deep community. And as a result, I think it's fair to say our society is breaking apart at an alarming rate. For example, violent crime in the UK is rising at an accelerating pace. Police figures show a 22% increase in knife crime, 11% rise in gun crime just in the last year. The Joseph Roundtree Foundation reports that 14 million people live in poverty in the UK today. That's over one in five of the population. A BBC poll from the week before Christmas found that one in 10 16 to 25-year-olds have spent at least one month sofa surfing, most commonly because of relationship failure and breakdown. Loneliness has also reached epidemic proportions, with researchers estimating that up to one in four people in the UK currently feeling lonely, all of which perhaps goes some way to helping explain why two out of every three adults in the UK have suffered problems like a panic attack, anxiety or depression, according to a recent study by the Mental Health Foundation. Now, I'm aware that life is often way more complex than just a set of cold figures like that suggest. I also don't in any way wish to be insensitive to, let's face it, the very real pain that lies beneath the surface of those 
statistics, not least for any number of people in this room right now. My point is simply is that I think we would probably all have to agree that our society has badly lost its way. And perhaps the greatest tragedy of all is that so many people kid themselves that actually everything's all right. And so they keep running headlong into deeper and deeper trouble. 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis made some observations that I think seem incredibly pertinent to our current situation. He said, we all want progress. I mean, we do, don't we? We, we? we quite like progress. But he goes on to say, progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We've all seen this with doing arithmetic. When I've started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. And so, with all of that in mind, let's return to the beginning. Let's look at the first three verses in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3. This is how it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now here's the thing. These verses actually don't just tell us the beginning of the story of the world. They actually give us a glimpse of what was there even before the beginning. Three things I think we see here. Each one of them is incredibly important for us to know about. Before the beginning, there was God, there was love, and there was darkness. Let's start with God. First four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. In other words, when the world began, God was already there. According to the Bible, God is the only one or the only thing that has no beginning. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean practically? Well, because God alone uniquely has no beginning, it kind of follows that everything that exists finds its origin or finds its being in Him. Let me give you an illustration try and show you the enormous difference between believing there is a God who made us and not believing there's any God who made us. I brought along my trusty garden secateurs. Have a good look. These have been designed for a very specific purpose. I mean, no one would have thought of producing these without first knowing what they were designed for. 
It's like, if you ask me whether these secateurs are any good, the only way that I can give you an answer is if I know, first of all, their intended purpose. I mean, who knows if they're any good unless you know what they're intended for. Now, if they're for pruning plants, then I guess they are good if they cut easily through the stem of a plant. And I guess they're pretty useless, pretty bad, if they don't. Not only that, but if you try to cut through paper with these, then you are going against their purpose. You'll probably ruin the paper and, in the process, blunt the secateurs as well. So it's good when they are used as intended, bad when they're not. Now, in the same way, if, and I know for some of us it's a big if, but go with me on this, if God created us, then it kind of follows that he designed us for a specific purpose. But to go highbrow on you right now, so, so I kind of apologize for this up front, but to quote the famous French philosopher and atheist Jean-Paul Sartre, who I don't think I've ever referred to or quoted in a sermon before, so uh, first time for this. He says this, if God doesn't exist, we have to face the consequences of this. We aren't made for a purpose, and therefore there is no definable good. If there is no God, then everything is permitted, he says. He's actually reinforcing the fact that if human beings were made by God, then there are things, certain things, that all human beings must do that are good, all things that all human beings must avoid like the plague because they're bad. But his main argument is actually that if God didn't make us, if we're not designed for anything, if we're not here for a purpose, then there is absolutely no way of talking about right and wrong and good and bad. If there is no higher being who created us and defined what was good for us, then Sartre would say there is no absolute truth. There's no way you can say some things are good or that you can say some things are bad for us to do. Now, the good news, according to Sartre, is you are absolutely free. Because in his mind, there is no God, so you can live any way you want. So, for example, you may be sitting there thinking that honesty is always right. Or you might be sitting there feeling things like genocide are always wrong. But why? How in the world are you going to say to everybody, we should all feel the way that I feel? If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in ultimate design, if you don't believe in an ultimate purpose, you can't say those things. And so everyone is completely free to live however they want to live. Listen, it's not enough just to say, if there's no God, then all things are permitted. You've got to be consistent with that. And here's the thing, nobody is. It's like we all draw the boundaries somewhere when it comes to what we think to be acceptable behavior. I mean, take the recent debate about abortion that's been in the news the last week. Very same people who say that it's a woman's right to decide whether or not they want to abort their child 
and who at the same time justify aborting babies with any kind of disability. Those same people right now are up in arms about aborting on the basis of the gender of the child. Now why do we do this? Why do we champion the right of the individual to choose how they want to live and then get livid when they dare to stray over the line of what we deem to be acceptable behaviour? Here's why. It's because ultimately, in the beginning, God. There was a God who created us. Romans chapter 1 says, we know that deep down. And even if we deny it up here, we cannot deny it in the way in which we live. We all have this inner craving for purpose and for meaning. We also can't escape the sense that certain behaviours are good and certain behaviours are bad. All of which surely points to the reality of a creator who designed us and designed us for a very specific purpose. Now, just to add, I would humbly suggest that Sartre is wrong about the freedom bit. I agree that saying you can live any old way you want is a way of thinking about freedom. But the Bible has a way better way. For example, have you ever heard the expression, free as a bird? Now, in my mind, there are a few things more majestic, more stunning than seeing a bird of prey kind of soaring through the sky, riding the thermals. But on the ground, if somebody is chasing it, the bird probably shouldn't run. I mean, it will die. It will be eaten alive because birds of prey are built for flying, not running. It's like when you see a bird submitting to its design and riding the thermals, then there's freedom. But they're not free by ignoring their design or their purpose. They become free by submitting to it. In fact, they're only actually enslaved, they're only literally eaten if they don't submit to their design. If they try to avoid their design, instead of flying, they try to run, well, it leads to death. So here's the question. Do you want to be free? I mean, seriously, do you really want freedom? Well, if you do, then connect with the God who created you. Find what he made you for. Live it out. Live in the good of it. Because before the beginning, there was God. Now, moving on. Have you ever wondered what on earth God was doing before he created the world? If he has always existed, how did God occupy himself? I don't know, maybe you think he created us because he was just getting a bit bored, or because it was a bit lonely and needed a bit of company. Well, there's no need to speculate or guess. Jesus tells us explicitly in John 17, verse 24, in his prayer to his Father, he says, Father, you loved me even, what's the word? Before the world began. A second point is, before the beginning, according to Jesus here, there was love. Before he ever created the world, before anything else existed, God was a father loving 
his son. Now, don't worry, we'll see how this fits with Genesis 1 in a moment or two, but first I want to quickly take a look at what happened at the baptism of Jesus. Remember the story, Matthew 3 verse 16, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. It's a glorious picture of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We were singing earlier about God being three in one. We get a picture of it here, all three of the members of the Trinity interacting with one another. The Father declares his love for his Son and his pleasure in him, and he does so as the Spirit comes and rests on Jesus. And this was no one-off that this whole scene is full of echoes of what we see back in Genesis chapter 1. For starters, at creation, the Spirit, if you remember, also hovered dove-like over the waters. And just as the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness after his baptism, well, back in Genesis 1, the Spirit appears as the power by which God's Word goes out into the lifeless void. And throughout the whole creation account, God repeatedly speaks of his pleasure, doesn't he, at what his Word brought into being. I mean, what's the repeated refrain throughout the whole first chapter after each act of creation. He saw that it was good. There was pleasure pulsating through every act of creation. Now John 1 picks up on this and reveals that the creative Word of God is none other than Jesus himself. John writes, in the beginning the Word already existed The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. Verse 10, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Verse 14, the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of grace and truth and we have seen his glory the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And so, putting all of this together, you have God the Father and the Word of God, who is the Father's one and only Son, and you have the Spirit of God all working together in unison to bring about creation, culminating in Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us, plural, make man in our image. It's like from the very beginning we we see evidence that God is Trinity, that the God who was there before the creation of the world is three persons, as we were singing about earlier, Father, Son is the Word of God, and Holy Spirit. Now look, I know this is kind of head-scratchingly hard to understand. In fact, I'll go so far as to say it's impossible to fully grasp. We have no frame of reference for this. The best we can do is come up with analogies, but there is no analogy, there is no illustration or example that truly does justice to explaining the deep, profound mystery of the Trinity. And so, I'm not going to waste any time trying to explain it to you right now. I simply want you to grasp 
the profound implication of this because in his very essence from before the very beginning of time God has always existed in community. God has always existed in relationship within himself. To quote a guy called Michael Reeves, the Trinity is not some inessential add-on to God, some optional software that can be plugged into him. He's not creator, ruler, or even God in some abstract sense. Now, he is the Father loving and giving life to his Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. A God who is in himself love, who before all things could never be anything but love. In other words, God didn't create us because he was lonely. He created us as an overflow of his love The Apostle Paul in the New Testament likens it to marriage. In in marriage you have two beings who are one essence and out of that union comes children. Now in a good marriage, you don't have kids, do you, because you're lonely and you're fed up with your partner, you want some kids to kind of take your mind off it. No, you're supposed to bring them into a loving union, a loving family, loving community. And that's what we see in Genesis 1. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit were knowing each other and loving each other and delighting in each other from all eternity and out of that comes the power for creation. As Michael Reeves goes on to put it, God's love spills out onto the canvas of the universe and he invites us into his love. Please don't miss this. From before the world began, Jesus says he enjoyed the love of the Father. And the reason he spoke the world into being was so we could be brought into this eternal love of God. And he was so determined for us to live in the good of this that when sin came in and fractured our ability to fully know his love, he personally rolled up his sleeves and came down to earth to mend what was broken, to make a way for us today to live in the good of this love, not just for today but for all eternity. Before the beginning there was love and we are now invited into that love. And then thirdly, before the beginning what we see here is there was also darkness. That's what we see in verse 2, the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters, which is the prelude to God's word getting to work and bringing about creation. Now, again, what do we learn from this? Well, two things. Number one, the word of God brings order out of chaos. When God begins to speak, the darkness and the chaos dispels, and there is orderliness and light. You know, in many respects, that right there is a picture of our lives. Our our lives are like this kind of formless void until God's Word comes in to bring life 
and peace and beauty and order. And when God's word departs from our lives, it's like everything descends back into chaos. Now bear with me in this, but I think there's a pretty potent example of this played out in the book of Exodus when, if you remember the story, Moses comes to Pharaoh and demands that he lets God's people go free. And of course, Pharaoh refuses. And if you recall, God then unleashes this series of plagues on the people of Egypt. Now, I don't know about you, but I used to read that story and wonder why in the world Pharaoh was so stubborn and kept refusing to allow God's people to go. I mean, couldn't he see that this was God's doing? But if you actually look carefully, you begin to realize why he might have been in some doubt. You see, all of the plagues are incredibly natural. I mean, for the first plague, God struck the Nile in such a way that everything in it died. And as a result, all of the frogs kind of jump out of the Nile uh, and are driven out into everyone's homes. And so there's this kind of infestation of frogs everywhere. And then all the frogs die and all the carcasses are lying around. And the next thing you know, there's this infestation of gnats and flies. As a result of that, suddenly there's an epidemic and the cattle begin to die and then the people begin to die. It's like you read all of that, you think, well, okay, I can see that there could be a natural explanation for all of this. You're thinking, why didn't God just make it unmistakable? Why didn't he get Moses to, to blow the roof off Pharaoh's palace or something like that? Why didn't God do it that way? Well, if God's only objective had been to convince Pharaoh that he existed and was more powerful than him, then I guess he could have chosen some other means I think God was demonstrating something more to Pharaoh and by implication to us as well. I reckon he was showing that sin and rebellion against God always results in the unraveling of creation. Remember how in Genesis 1 God brings order out of chaos? In the plagues of Exodus, sin and rebellion against God causes order to descend back into chaos. It's like the Word of God creates, sin decreates. In fact, you see it in the second to last plague near the very end. Suddenly, if you remember, there's darkness over the face of the whole land. It's almost as though God is just unraveling creation, demonstrating how their sin is destroying the creation, destroying the very fabric that he had made. And I suggest that is what lies behind the pretty bleak statistics that we saw at the beginning. Our society is fracturing at an alarming rate. And a bit like Pharaoh, everyone seems blind to what's happening we're going our own way. We're thinking we are so incredibly progressive, while all the time our refusal to live under the Word of God is unleashing the forces of chaos and darkness in our lives. So what can be done? Is there any hope for us? Well, fortunately, I believe there is. Because secondly and finally, the Word will one day redeem what sin has destroyed. We've seen a bit of this already, but John opens up his story of Jesus' life 
by connecting him to creation. He says, in the beginning, as we've read already, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 3, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. You ready for a bit of encouragement? Well, here goes. The stunningly good news of the gospel is that Jesus, the Word of God, re-enters this dark, sin-filled, chaotic world, bringing life and light to it again. That's the good news. Throughout his whole ministry on earth, we see Jesus walking around, undoing, unpicking the chaos and the darkness that was left by sin. He heals diseases. He opens blind eyes. He causes the lame to walk. He calms storms. He raises the dead. Wherever sin had left a dark void, Jesus said, let there be light. And there was he forgives adulterers and thieves, removing their shame and transforming them from the inside out. So Zacchaeus, the thief, becomes excessively, abundantly generous. Impure women become pillars of character and virtue. It was all going so incredibly well. But then his life is brought to an abrupt end as he's seized by a mob and crucified on a Roman cross. We're told in Matthew 27 that as Jesus breathes out his last breath, he cries out at the top of his voice, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? At which point there was an earthquake, and what happens next? Darkness descends on the whole earth. Don't miss what's going on here. Nothing was made without Jesus, the Word of God. Through him, everything was made. Jesus is the creator who came here to earth not to smite us, but to be uncreated so we could be recreated. Jesus is the maker who was willing to be unmade so we can be remade. Jesus is the judge who came not to bring judgment, to bear our judgment. Jesus the architect, the designer of everything good in creation, bore the weight on his shoulders of all that is bad in creation. He experienced firsthand the darkness and void of sin so that we who had rejected the word could have light and life again. If you like Jesus, allowed himself to be decreated on the cross so that we could be recreated in the resurrection. And so, if you're here today, and maybe it feels like your life has been destroyed by sin, whether that's your sin or the sin of others, maybe it feels like you're walking in darkness right now, maybe you're bound by addiction, maybe your family life is unraveling, the good news is, if you turn to Christ, He has the power 
to make all things new. Now, I'm not promising that your family life will instantly get better or that your job will improve overnight or your depression will will, will just lift like that. Often, these things are gradual. Sometimes you you don't need me to tell you. It, It can even seem like things are getting worse before they get better. But the moment the Word and the Spirit and the Father come into the life of everyone who's born again, who gets right with Him through believing in Him, the work of recreation begins. The work of recreation that will finally be complete in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of time. And between now and then, as we're going to see in more detail in the weeks to come, we are invited by God to join Him in His work of restoring all things, making all things new. That's a message for another day. Really, more than anything else, today's message is simply an appeal to you to wake up to the lostness of the society we live in and retrace your steps to the very beginning and find the God who alone brings purpose and meaning to everything and discover the true love that He created you to enjoy and allow His light to shine into the darkest areas of your life, restoring and healing and mending what sin has destroyed. And here's the thing, if we all go out into the world, living in the good of this, together we will begin to reweave the fabric of the reality that sin has devoured. Let's pray.